Today we're going to be in Luke 15. He assigned me a phenomenal parable for us to talk about. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. I love this passage. If you have your Bibles, phones, whatever you want to do, you can turn to that. I'll set it up just a little bit because a parable is really just a story. It's an illustration or an analogy that Jesus taught in those analogies all the time to make a spiritual point, a spiritual lesson. And his audience in Luke 15, if you see in verse 3, was Pharisees, some of the spiritual rulers of the day, and then sinners and tax collectors. That was his audience. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to unpack this passage, and we're going to connect the parable to that audience, and we're going to connect it to us here this morning. And I'm going to have a great time, because this is a phenomenal story. I hope you have a good time with me this morning as we, as we dive into it. So let me pray before we begin. Father, as, as has been stated already, we walk into this room with our minds and our emotions in a lot of different places. And I pray that right now you would just quiet our hearts to help us to fully be here. Bring mental and emotional rest to our borders. Lord, we want to hear from your word. I want to share the points and the illustrations that you want me to speak about. And, Lord, we want you to continue to do your work in transforming us into the image of your Son. So help us to glean from your text this morning and enjoy the story that you told a couple thousand years ago. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we'll begin in verse 11. The parable of the prodigal. And he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided this property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, there's a lot of different debate on whether or not this was actually culturally acceptable at this time. I've read some people that said, yep, this was, this was not abnormal, that you would actually approach your dad and ask for an inheritance before he passed. I've read other folks that say, no, this was an, an extreme offense. Don't know that it's extremely critical to the point of the story. I kind of think it would be more of an offense as you look at kind of what happened later in the, in the story and how the younger son was responding to his dad. But this young man, he grew up on this farm. He's probably in his late teens. And he's thinking to himself, I've been on this farm every day, all day, working, hanging out with my dad, growing whatever crops that they're growing. There's got to be something better for me out there. I don't enjoy what I'm doing. And so he made the decision, I'm going to go try to find a life. I'm going to go get a life because what we have on this farm, this is not life. This is not the life that I want to experience. All my friends are going out there and they're traveling and they're doing things and they're experiencing life. He felt like he was missing out. So he goes to a dad and asks for that inheritance. Now, in Jewish culture, this is just another little tidbit of info here. In Jewish culture, that meant he actually got a third of his dad's inheritance because the firstborn got a double portion. So the firstborn son gets two-thirds, he gets one-third. And so that one-third was probably comprised of cattle and uh, livestock and maybe land and some cash. And he cashes it all in, and he decides that he's going to go. He's going to go to find a life. Because in his mind, he's missing out on what could be experienced. So let's pick it up again in verse 14. Here's what happens to him. And when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Man, there's so many parts to this deal. Have any of you guys ever raised hogs? Any hog pig farmers? Like any, a couple. What does it smell like? We can talk. It's disgusting, right? I mean, it's awful. So we, I lived in South Louisiana where my wife and I grew up, and my, my family grew me, uh, raised me up there as well. And we had just a small, like, uh, family farm, and, but it kind of took care of us. And we had a lot of chickens, and we, we had everything. And we had some hogs. We had a hog pen, and we had a cement bottom to it because they're just nasty. So we'd go out there and hose it off. And I don't want to be really gross here, but I, I'm, I'm going to try to be appropriate, right? I, I am going to be appropriate. Here's the deal. I mean, they're pooping and peeing all over everything. And you've got the food trough, and you're pouring slop in the food trough. They're pooping in the food trough, and then they're eating. They're eating everything. I mean, it smells awful. We had that pig pen way far away from the house, about as far as we could get it. We'll go out there with the hose and squirt it down. And so when I read the story, I think this young man is so desperate. He's so hungry that he's longing to eat the food that is in the pig trough. I'm telling you, I ain't never been that hungry. Longing to eat the pods that the pigs ate is what the parable says. And so there's even more of an issue here going on than just the fact that he wants to eat the pig slop. Jews don't even like pigs. it's, It's ceremonially unclean to them. And so the fact that he's even working with these hogs is like, a, it's like a, it, def, it defiles him and everything in his religious beliefs. And on top of that, he's actually working for a Gentile. Now, what's a Gentile? A Gentile is a non-Jew. And how do we know it was a Gentile? Because Jews didn't have hogs, right? They didn't eat them. I mean, we learned to love bacon. Jews don't eat bacon. He was working for a Gentile, a person who was not even in their faith. So he has sunk to absolutely rock bottom, lost all his money, longing to eat out of the pig trough, working for a Gentile, working with hogs, and as the last part of the verse says, no one is there to give him anything. Whatever friends he thought he had as he went to go pursue the world were now evaporated, and he was desperate. So let's read kind of what comes to his mind next. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. Treat me as one, sorry, no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So one of the things that the young man realized immediately was that his offense was not just against his dad. Which is why I believe if he believed that he offended his dad, then probably asking for that inheritance probably was an offense in that, in that particular situation, although some would say it's not. But he knew he had offended his dad, but he didn't just offend dad. He offended not his earthly father also, but his heavenly father too. And, and in his mind, he's thinking, I'm not even worthy to go home and let my dad take me back into the house. I, I don't even belong in the house. I don't deserve to be his son. The servants have it better. They all have a place to sleep, food to eat, clothes to wear. they got a job. They're taking care of themselves and their family. The servants have it better than I do here. But I can't go back and ask my dad to just let me be his boy again. 
And I wonder, for those of us sitting in the room today, how many of us have issues in our current or in our past that make us feel the same thing? How many of us struggle, struggle with decisions that we've made, thoughts that we think, addictive behaviors that we might have, past actions that were like, I'm not worthy to be accepted into full relationship with Jesus. I, I, I feel dirty. I don't feel like I can come into the presence of Christ and worship and pray because he doesn't, he's not going to accept me because of what I've done. He's not going to fully love me because of what I've done. He's not going to forgive me because of what I've done. He's not just going to bring me back into the family and say, yes, I'm so glad you're home. Because of the stuff that I've done. I, being in ministry, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who say, I can't come to Christ until I clean my life up. I, I, I can't come to that Bible study. It, it, it's just too hard because the conviction and the burden of what my lifestyle is like and what I'm participating in and what I'm doing and what I have been. If you only knew what I've done. There's no way I could come into a Bible study. There's no way I could come into a fellowship with Jesus. That's exactly what this younger son was thinking. And who in the audience was Jesus talking to? Because he's primarily looking at the audience and he's telling this parable and he's talking to these sinners and these tax collectors who have done the exact same thing. They've pursued life on their own terms thinking that the only way they're going to find fulfillment and significance is by going out to the world. And the son, he's thinking, how am I going to come home and tell my dad the story that I've lost everything? So I don't know about you guys, but when I was a teenager and I knew that I had been doing some things that my parents didn't particularly want me to do, and I was coming home late. Anybody ever come home late from curfew? That was a problem. And so I'm coming home late, and the whole drive home, I'm thinking, how am I going to spin this story? What am I going to be able to say that's not going to get me in too much trouble, but yet be humble enough to acknowledge that I made some mistakes? So I can imagine that's exactly what this younger brother's doing. He's trying to come home. He's trying to sneak in the front door without mom and dad hearing him. Mom and dad always heard me sneak in the front door. I don't know how that worked. But anyway, they're listening. Like, when my kids come home, I don't hear a doggone thing. I'm like sacked out, sound asleep. My parents had like this spidey radar going on. Always busted me. All right, so he's thinking, what am I going to tell my dad when I come home? So let's look at the response of the father. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I love to put myself into the characters of these stories. So imagine for a moment you're the dad, and, and, and imagine it's the day that you gave your son the inheritance, and then he cashes it all in. You're watching him sell the stuff that he gave you, and then you're watching him leave. And I don't know if you're like me, you know, when you have older kids, when they come in from out of town, and then they leave, 
we st- I feel like, I'm, like my grandma used to do this to me. You stand at the front door and you watch them drive off until they disappear around the corner. And I can imagine that this is the same thing the father did on this day when his boy decided that he was going to leave. He's standing in his farm and he's watching, and he's watching his young son's body disappear into the horizon. And as he's going, he's praying because he knows that his son is going to find trouble. He knows that his son is not pursuing significance in life the way that he really needs to. But, but he's going to let his son go. Which, by the way, is exactly what God does with you and me. See, God doesn't hold us like with these little strings on a puppet. He's going to let us go. He's going to allow us to make the decisions that we want to make. He's going to allow us to make the mistakes that we want to make. And so the father in this story is doing the same. He let his son go. And Scripture doesn't say how long he was gone. Could have been weeks, could have been months, could have been a couple of years But I can imagine that he often stopped and would straighten up from his work on the farm, stretch his back out, and look at the last place where he saw his son disappear into the horizon. And he would probably pray for his boy, just like I know as a parent, I pray for my adult kids as they're out across different places in the country. And on this one particular day, as he's staring off into the distance and he's praying, he sees a figure. And probably he didn't recognize it as his son immediately because it's, as Scripture says, a long way off because the dad had been looking for his son's return for a long time. So he's looking into the distance and he sees a figure. And he probably can't even tell which way it's walking or where it's going or who it is initially. So he goes back to work, looks up another 15, 20 minutes later, and he sees the figure even closer. And immediately his heart begins to race And it begins to pound, and Scripture says that he runs because he recognizes that it's his son. Now, if you have kids, you know how this works. Because we have four, and we go now. Our third son plays soccer from Malone University. So we will go to his games, and when it's late in October and they're still playing, it's a little colder. And he'll have his sweatsuit on, his hoodie up, and his gloves on. And you can't see his, you know, he's 40, 50 yards out there. So you can't see his face, can't see his hands, can't see his hair, can't see anything. How much difficulty do you think I have in recognizing which one of those boys is mine? None. Why? Because I know everything about my son. I know how he moves. I know how he runs. I know how he carries his arms when he's running across the field. I know how he traps the ball and sends it away. I know everything about his movements because I've studied him for 20 years. 21. See, there's the birthday problem right there. He's 21. I've studied him forever. And so we walk out there. We say, yeah, there's Jonathan right there. And so that's exactly what this dad did. He saw how his son moved, and he knew it was his boy, and he immediately ran to embrace him. Now, one of the issues with this whole running thing that's, that's kind of interesting with the culture is that it was not uh, appropriate. Older Jewish men in this culture, they just didn't run anywhere. So the fact that he was running was just exemplifying this incredible ecstasy that his boy was coming home. And in his mind, he didn't care what he had done. He didn't know if he had spent all the money. He didn't know what he had been doing. He had no clue what his past was, had no clue what his history was, had no clue what his actions and his decisions had been. But he was overwhelmingly excited to see him anyway without any explanation. Exactly the way God sees you and me. Except he does know. 
but he's still excited to see you and me because in the parable, the Father is God. And that's how he runs towards us. Now imagine for a minute if you're the young man who's walking back. And who knows how many days of a journey this was before he got back to the farm. And he's probably rehearsing this story over and over and over. Probably trying to imagine, where's dad going to be when I show up? Like in his mind, he probably didn't want his dad to see him first. Like I never did. I always wanted to be able to see my dad first so I could be in charge of the stage. I could set the whole environment. He was probably thinking, I'm going to go to my dad. I'm going to tell him I've sinned before God. I've sinned before you. I'm not worthy to be one of your sons. Just hire me as a servant. He might have thought he was going to get down on his face and beg for forgiveness. But he wasn't given any of those options. Because his dad had been looking for him, saw him from a far way off, and took off running to get him. Now, in his mind, if I'm this younger man, I'm thinking, what in the world is my daddy going to do when we actually get face to face? He doesn't know if his dad is mad. He doesn't know if his dad has a hundred questions. What have you been? Where have you been? What have you been doing? He doesn't know if his dad's going to look at him and say, get off of my property. I can't believe you came back here after you did this. Boy, you have some nerve. He has no idea what his daddy's going to say. And then the moment comes, and they come together, and his dad embraces him. And the word embrace literally means to fall on his neck. Can you imagine the moment? He grabs him, and he falls on his neck, and he hugs him, and he's kissing him, and he's so excited to have him home. And I can imagine the son, in this moment, he's probably going, Dad, no, I'm not worthy of this. You can't hug me. Please don't kiss me. Don't touch me. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And his dad cuts him off. Doesn't even let him finish the whole story that he's been practicing. Because what he wanted to say is, let me be one of your servants. But his dad doesn't even let him get there. His dad immediately looks at one of his servants and says, bring the robe. Bring the ring. Bring the sandals for my boy. The ring probably had a signet that was the family symbol. The robe was welcoming him back with with love and dignity. The sandals signify the fact that slaves, servants, don't wear shoes. We're going to put sandals on my boy's feet. We're going to give him a ring because he's in the family. You're back, and I'm excited you're here. I don't care what you've done. See, the parable doesn't talk about that he asked him a lot of questions. The father had forgiven the son the moment that he left. And he was just embracing him and excited to see him come back. Let's keep picking up the story. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice that, son of yours, not his brother anymore. When this son of yours came, it's like my wife does that. This son of yours, Jerry, has been in trouble today, right? That kind of thing. This it's generational, man. This goes on for thousands of years. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
See, the older son has his own set of issues. See, the older son, he's working, doesn't see his brother come in, comes back to the house, hears the music, finds out what's going on. He is furious. He's thinking, what are you doing? Like, I never got anything. I've been here every day working on this farm for you. I don't even, I never even got a goat. The significance of the goat is that it's way less expensive, way less significant. The fattened calf was saved for a huge celebration. And this day was the celebration. Dad, I, I, I've always been here for you. I've always worked for you. I've always performed. I did everything you and Mama always told me to do. I've never been a problem. Why in the world are you celebrating him? You see, the older son was in a performance trap. He had a performance understanding of if I do all the right things, then my father's going to love me. If I do everything that he asks me to do, then my father's going to bless me. If, if I'm obedient and I work hard and I do all these extra things, then I'm going to be in right standing with my dad. So who was Jesus talking to in his audience with this? He was talking to the Pharisees. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees believed. They had the religion, they had the Jewish customs, they added all these extra laws on top of them, and they looked down their noses at everybody else who didn't do exactly the way that they did it. There are way, way too many of us who believe still today that we have to perform to have God's blessing and acceptance in our life. And it takes shape in a whole lot of different forms. Jesus, I've had a quiet time every day. I've memorized all these scriptures. I've never cheated on my family. I don't cuss. I don't drink. I'm at the church every time the doors are open. I serve on these committees. I'm a greeter. I, I, I'm nice to my neighbors. I, I help the lady down the street cut her grass and push the snow out of her driveway. I do all this good stuff. So God is going to bless me. God is going to love me. God is going to see me differently because I've done all this stuff. It's a performance trap. And what God is saying here, and Jesus is saying here in this parable is that both of these sons have missed it. The older son is caught up into thinking that I can earn God's favor. And so he's seeking God's hand instead of seeking God's face. Instead of just trying to be in relationship with the Father, he's trying, to, he's trying to earn something from the Father. And so what does the Father say back to him? He says, son, please come into the party. This is fitting. Your brother was lost. Now he's back. This is a great day. Son, everything I have is yours. Don't worry about it. Everything is yours. You always have me. You don't have to earn anything. It's yours. It's done. It's secure. So please come into the party. Please come in and celebrate with me and your brother. And the father reminds him, it's not just my son, it's your brother. As he says, please come in and celebrate with your brother. I love this story because I think it's so pertinent to us today. We, we, we teach this parable often in, in Athletes in Action to athletes who, who believe that if they perform at a high level, that they're going to be more valuable. They're going to be more significant. They're going to have a better relationship with Christ even. Christ becomes like a good luck charm to them. And it's the same thing in the workforce. It, it doesn't change regardless of what you spend your time and your vocational energy doing. 
And God is saying, everybody's welcome to the banquet. If you're a performance person, if you're going out trying to find life somewhere else, if you're a Pharisee or a tax collector, everybody's welcome. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to pray. And I'm going to give us a chunk of silence in the midst of this prayer. Maybe 20, 25 seconds or so. And I want, I want you guys before the Lord, as I lead us through this prayer, to just wrestle with. And Father, ask the Father, help me to see what is it in this parable that maybe I'm connecting with. I, there's pieces of me in this parable. There's pieces of my life that I look back historically, and I'm still ashamed of them today. I'm still ashamed of decisions I've made. So this is an ongoing battle that I even deal with now, where it's, where it's like, Father, I, I, I'm, I'm really not deserving of all the love and grace that you give. And it's a, it's a lie that we allow ourselves to fall into. What might the Lord bring to your mind that you need to just go back to the Father and say, Father, I, I'm sorry that I've believed this lie and I accept your forgiveness and I'm going to come in to the banquet. Or, or maybe you connect with the older son and you realize that, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just here checking a list, just trying to do the Christian thing just to get it right, just to feel good about my day, when in reality I've got all this all this bad perception of who God is that I've got to earn his favor. And afterwards, if there's some things that the Lord has kind of pricked your heart with on this, I know the, the pastoral staff, John and Anson, Patrick, they'd love to talk to you. Grab an elder. We'd love to chat with you about anything that the, that the Lord may grip your heart with on this this morning. Let's pray. Please join me. Father, I love this story because it is just so applicable for us today. You spoke it 2,000 years ago to an audience where it fit, and it fits now. So, Lord, I pray that even right now, if, if, if there are things in our lives that we just kind of have hidden in a closet that we believe makes us unworthy of your love, unworthy of being one of your children, unworthy of being completely freed to worship. If there's some of that stuff that we're hanging on to, Lord, I pray that you would just bring it to our minds right now. Help us to confess it, to give it back to you, and, and, and just claim your forgiveness of that.